Look at the third subject, uh, that of God's written word by man. We call this the word of God. And yet, uh, we know a lot of other names in the Bible that uh, identify who wrote it. Uh, I I'm, thought it occurs to me we ought to sing about that. Let's let's do it. There's a nice little course that I learned way back when about God's Word that have a lot of uh, other kinds of names in it. You know, yeah, that's it goes like this: uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. That's low. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Levi, Esther, Jonah, and the Book of Psalms are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Most students who come to a mass cannot give you the books of the Bible in order. It's that simple. Most of them have never read the Bible once in its entirety. You know, I have a freshman class, and when I come on the subject of bibliology, the second subject under a survey of doctrine, I ask those kind of questions. And they're all embarrassed about that. It even gets more embarrassing when we talk to grown adults and you have the same kind of a problem, you know. Yeah. What do we say about this book? What do we say about it? That's a question. It's God's Word. It's infallible. It's inspired of God. Westminster Confession. Wonderful statement. All we need for faith and practice. We sang about that in a song today. Just when we opened up. All we need for faith and practice. What else? It's authoritative. It's the Word of God. That's a big statement. That one only and true God that we spoke of under the Trinity is His book. It's inerrant. Totally accurate. In things of science, inerrant, right all the time. In things of history, in things of faith. Only true word from God. We say all that, and then when my son John does this with the student body, he says, And why haven't you read it once? It's a truth, isn't it? We really, and we all believe that. Why don't you read it more then? Why don't you believe it? Why don't you act upon it? All the rest of it. And uh, if we have background in Christianity, uh, growing up in Christian homes, we sort of just believe that, don't we? Uh, 
How many of you have are first generation Christians, first in your family to come alive? What was your feeling about the Word of God when you came to faith in Christ? Did, did you have the concept that this is the only true book? No. What process did you go through to come to that position? Time. You see, when you're born in a setting like that, you kind of inherit it. And uh, you have one of two reactions. Jay Gretchen Machen, a great scholar, a great Greek scholar, said there, there are basically two kinds of Christians. Those who just believe the Word of God instinctively and don't struggle with it, and others who have to wrestle with every text to be con- to figure out that, you know, this is really true. I, I grew up in a Christian home, and it was the true Word of God, and it's just the way it is. But uh, when you come to faith in adulthood or later in life out of a non-Christian setting, you kind of grow into that. And uh, then probably the generations of children that come forth out of that have a view that, here's the Bible. You know, it's God's Word. Is that pretty accurate? Do you find that to be the case? Now, for those of us who, uh, uh, like uh, Paul could write to Timothy, the faith that was first in your grandmother and then your mother, and I'm persuaded in you also, uh, it sounds like it's almost passed on, and we know it's not. There is enormous influence. But we do well to understand the text, uh, that it is God's Word, and that it is man's Word, and just like in the hypostatic union, it's united in one book forever. God's Word as though it were not man's Word. Man's Word as though it were not God's Word, united in one truthful book. And the mysteries connected to the hypostatic union are parallel to those connected with the Word of God. It is clear that the Bible claims authority for itself. Oh, you didn't wave your hands at me. Come on. Read the verse. This is a great verse. I always get help when I come down here. It's a truth. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 18. It is better grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will grasp both of them. will follow all of them. Isn't that great? That's the verse. Uh, next time I'll have to superimpose that on the front page. That's it. Hold on to both of them. You let go of one, you're dead in the water. And that is true with the Word of God, too. There are certain passages in Scripture in the first uh, uh, chart that are interesting. You mentioned 2 Timothy 3.16. Someone find that or quote it for me. And someone else, uh, 2 Peter 1.21. Okay. And Matthew 5.18. Who will take Matthew 5.18? Volunteer. 5.18. Okay. 2 Timothy 3.16. Who has that? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to doctrine for reproof, for instruction, for instruction, righteousness, and God, and for thoroughly burning. It's a wonderful verse of says, All scripture is God breathed, inspired of God, and is profitable for practical, holy living. Earlier on in that same chapter, Paul will say to Timothy, And that from a child you have heard the Holy Scriptures, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. All Scripture 
is given by inspiration. That means all of it. At that point in time, do you think all is referring to the Scripture? Uh, the Old Testament and his own writings as well. He puts them on a plane with the Old Testament Scripture, the uh, collected writings of the Old Testament. We'll talk about that in a little bit too, how they ever came to be. That's one of the important concepts that we want to get hold of today. But he will say, he will make his writings equal authoritatively to those. And I'll have to find the exact verse he does that, but there is one like that. And Peter will, uh, will refer to Paul as an other scripture as soon after he has quoted Old Testament scripture. So there, there is the equating of Old and New Testament by the apostles themselves as they uh, write scripture. It was still in development. Now this was Second uh, Timothy 3. Where does that fit in Paul's writings? Right at the end of his writings. But there's still more to come. It's the Apostle John. And the Apostle John has something to say about the finality of his message. He will say, don't add to this book. And he'll also say, don't take away from it. You do that to your peril. And there's, there's something to say that that's at the conclusion of uh, the writings of Scripture, the last of the writers. So there is some uh, historical flow that, that they did know what they were doing. And yet, in the Second Peter passage, it tells us that the writers of Scripture didn't know what they were doing. Who has that one? Go ahead. Yeah, and they concluded as they write these things, they couldn't figure it out. They, they said, well, I'm writing about the suffering of Christ and the glory. I, I don't get how this works out. And they made a conclusion. Do you remember their conclusion? They wrote for those upon whom these things would have been fulfilled. And we can look back at the Old Testament prophets and see the suffering of Christ, the glory that follows. And we have no, where's the suffering of Christ glow, go? Crucifixion? Leading up, where's the glory that should follow? Millennium. It's not a problem to us. Was to them. And they concluded by the Holy Spirit that they were ministering to a coming generation upon whom it would come. Evan, and I said this as I was speaking a while back on Revelation. Some of Revelation I just don't get. Isn't it true? How's this going to work out in detail? And I think we make the same conclusion. That's yet future. The people in the tribulation time will have no problem determining if they're literal hailstones of 100 pounds or if that's just a description of a really bad storm. <laughs> they'll know exactly, won't they? And they'll say, look at this thing weighs 100 pounds. Uh, it'll be clear to them. If it didn't hit them on the head, it'll be clear to them. That's, that's the whole point of it. All Scripture. And holy men of God spoke as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. There's a translation, I think you used this last night, of superintending. Scripture, And that's a very good concept. The word borne along is the uh, same description uh, of the boat, uh, ship in which uh, Paul and the prisoners were on the way to Rome, that it was borne along by the storm. Uh, the Holy Spirit surrounding, superintending the arrival of Scripture. And gets it where He wants it to go. Matthew 5.18 For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, Letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. 
And the letter and stroke is the uh, jot and tittle, the yod and the tittle. What's a yod? It's the yeah, it's one of the Hebrew letters. The yod, the smallest of Hebrew letters. And you can see that if you have a Bible that outlines uh, Psalm 119 according to each of the Hebrew letters. And they'll usually have, it's the only place in the whole Bible you have the real Hebrew down. And you can see the little yod, it looks like a Y, very small letter. The tittle is a a smaller part of the uh, Hebrew lettering. It would be uh, the difference between a Q and a G. A little hook. That's precise, isn't it? Not one jot or tittle. Uh, smallest concept in Scripture. And, and you have that played out in some of the verses describing, uh, giving doctrinal truth. Describing how this inspiration concept works. When God blesses Abraham, he says, In thee and in thy seed shall all the earth be blessed. Uh, The Apostle Paul make a point of that in Galatians. Do you remember the point he makes? In thee and in thy seed. We are the children of promise. It's seed singular, not plural. Who is the seed in thee, Abraham, and in thy seed? The The Lord. Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? A very interesting description there. So we say there is precision. Now the definition, this is a test of your reading ability. i got to get this about here. That's a little shorter than the normal 18 inches. It's God's superintendence of the human authors so that using their own individual personalities... They composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original manuscript. God superintends it all so that using the human personalities of the authors of Scripture, what they write down according to their personality and literary skills is precisely the wording to the jot and tittle that God intended it to be in the original manuscripts. So there we are. That's a clear statement. Are there any problems in that definition? I mean the tension kind of problems. You see, we base our whole future on this book, don't we? That what it says is truthful. Not only our future, the way we live today. What in the wide world are we doing here on a Saturday morning? Because we think it's kind of valuable to do this. Are there any problems in this little biblically oriented definition? Yeah, the human, human, the input of human personalities. How does that work? Is it true that we see human personalities in the writings of Scripture? Yeah. You, you can tell different writers as you're going through it. You can tell their emotions when they're writing. You can tell when Paul writes 
Galatians, he is really kind of hot. And when he writes Philemon, he's kind of humorous and manipulative. I mean, you you see human personalities throughout. You see uh, see the style of Peter, so much different than Paul. Uh, you know, any of you ever diagram sentences? Do they do that in school anymore? Not much. <laughs> I don't think so. The subject, the predicate, the adjectives, the modifying clauses and phrases, all are, it's really fun to do. <laughs> you don't think that's fun? You know, if, if we would do that in our English Bible, I can't tell the Greek teachers at school this, but if we do that carefully in the English Bible, we probably have 90% of the benefits of studying the original language. It slows you down so much. Here's the main sentence. God has spoken. Here are seven modifying statements to that. Oh, yeah, God is here. And it slows you down. And you learn an awful lot when you go slower through Scripture, you know. But Peter, holy smoke. In the opening of 1 Peter, he has a verse that goes on for a sentence that goes on for about six verses. I mean, it doesn't make much sense to try to analyze it. The Greek has a word for describing that's called anakaluthon. What that means is a loosely disconnected set of thoughts. <laughs> and it's what it is. And you read through it and you say, I think I know what he's saying. But to see how that works out grammatically is, is kind of tough to do. That's his style. Get into the book of Hebrews, and man, you're dealing with a different person. Different person altogether. His vocabulary, his structure, his cleverness. Oh, it's just amazing. Uh, the author of Hebrews uses words with two meanings quite a few times. And you sit there and say, what did he really mean? Uh, one rule of hermeneutics is that every section of Scripture has only one meaning. I don't think that's true. And and he he will make a warning. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Depends on how you respond as to what it really means. Some people are thinking about bailing out and going back to Judaism. And that's one message to that group. The other group is saying, yeah, I'm, I'm not really very much on the stick as a Christian. And it means something else to them. It depends on who you are as to what the meaning of the words mean. That's scary, isn't it? And then he'll say, this man, having made one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Did he make one sacrifice for sins forever? Did he forever sit down? In relationship to birth, things are true. At the beginning, he says, there's a seated high priest. And in another place, he's talking about uh, having made one final sacrifice. Both things are true. Paul does the same thing. Love of Christ constrains us. Our love for him or his love for us. Both things are true. And uh, the author of Hebrews is very much that way. He has all different techniques that you see as he teaches us. He thinks we can think. And he makes a quote to prove a point, and he doesn't even tell how it proves it. And we have to go, oh, let me think about that a while. And then we go, ah, I see what you mean. He doesn't even tell us. And that's his technique. Luke in the book of Acts has all sorts of neat little techniques of 
dividing the book up for it. I get so excited when I go through I, I think I've done Acts down here. It is so exciting. And every time I go through it, I see more things that he's just throwing at us as hints. Here's a thought here, a thought here. They tie all these thoughts together. It is. And you see the human authorship everywhere. How does that work? How could you expect that a human being raised in a certain culture with certain educational backgrounds and uh, customs and traditions would, when he goes to write a letter to another church or write a history of the children of Israel, how do you think it works that he does it exactly the way God would want it to? Can you imagine how that could work out? How could it work? You think they sort of sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write a book of the Bible now. I'm waiting. (laughs) Paul's going to write a letter to Corinthians. And in short, he's going to say, look, you've got ten problems over at that church. I'm going to write about every one of them and tell you what to do. He starts writing. And he said, I wish I could be face to face with you because, you know, I, I like to be able to change the tone of voice. That's my argument for talking on the phone instead of sending messages. Because you can see how hear how people respond. And Paul wanted that. Because he changed the way he was writing if he could see their response. It seems very natural. And yet, it becomes uh, part of the canon as it's collected. Which brings another whole question. We'll talk about that directly. How? How could God use those personalities and their education and their historical background? What does that tell us about how God is involved? It tells us something really great about God's involvement in our lives. Can you imagine what it is? Pardon? Uh, yeah, how? This, this is right. Why do I write and speak and talk and have the idiosyncrasies that I have now? Why do you? Through that's certainly the case. But when did all those component parts of who I am come to be so that today I'm talking the way I talk to you? Or, to put it back to Paul and the other authors, they would write that way. What are the ingredients that come together to make that happen? That really is, that is the true statement. It is your life. It is the sovereignty of God in how much of your life? All of it. That's a hard one for us to understand. Because it doesn't seem like he's involved in our life in all the details of our life. And he structured it that way, too. But that is the truth of it. And hence what we're saying is when the author would go to write, he brings all of the educational experience, be that formal and informal, all of his family background, all of his tradition, all of his background in varying forms of religion, he brings as part of the composite of who that author is. And God the Holy Spirit takes that whole thing 
And when this, this person's going through his natural style of raining something down, showing his literary style, his intellectual awareness, his reasoning, his temperament, the whole thing, it is exactly what God had had in mind when Psalm 139, I intricately wrought you within your mother's womb. That is exciting to me. We are what we are by design, by the grace of God. When we were there, first conceived, that's the moment in time. What happens for us as a person at the moment of conception? What is determined in that romantic, intimate act of your mom and dad? What is determined about you at that moment in time? DNA is? You said all of us? It's all about you. All about you. Like what? Your natural gifts? Your, your intellect, your emotion, your will, your personality. It's at that moment in time you were, you're either a golden retriever, an otter, or a beaver, or a... <laughs> Or a lion. At that time, man, I'm 100% lion. That's it. You've done those tests. They're fun to do. That's that moment in time. Intellectual levels are determined. Whether we're going to be an average guy or, or a genius. Limitations. Physical limitations. Whether we're coordinated or not. Whether we're going to be able to sing beautifully or... My, my father asked me, didn't ask me, told me to take voice lessons for a couple of years, and I did. And uh, uh, I had to give a little presentation to the principal of this school. And uh, the song I had to sing was entitled, I Want to Go to Rio. I want to go to Rio. <laughs> And the principal, after I sang it, said, Do you know what? After hearing that, I never want to go to Rio. (laughs) That was back in the days when they told the truth. (laughs) That's hilarious. And my my, voice teacher said, Sing in the choir. Okay. (laughs) Oh, it was kind of fun. That was all determined way back when, too. How you would sing, how you wouldn't. Pavarotti's are freaks. You knew that all along, I'm sure. But it's a, you have to have a certain physical build and structure of your vocal cords and all the rest to ever be able to sing like that. You could practice forever. If you didn't have that, that's part of the very beginning. You'd never be able to do it. And this concept of inspiration assumes all of that. It's the superintending of God, the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't start when he picks up his pen to start to write. It starts way back when. The Apostle Paul got hold of that, one of the main contributors. He said, I was separated to the gospel, when? Galatians, from my mother's womb. There was a lot of time he was not separated to the gospel. He was separated from it, from experience. But that was part of what equipped Paul in the whole of the process. So you have to have a very big, big, big picture of God dealing with human beings 
so that at a given time, using their own intellect, education, personality, historical background, all the rest of it, they came to do and write down exactly what God wanted as the Holy Spirit bore them along. And the special task for them was the writing of Scripture. And it was inspired of God. So that's how we have to come at this uh, using their own personalities because the personalities show up all over Scripture. It's, it's beyond personality, too. The Lord it controls experience. Oh, yes. Hear that. This is a huge statement. The Lord controls all the experiences of life. We find that hard to accept. It's a different story for each of us. And that's our story. Every one of us has a wonderful story. Have you have struggled with the words that Evan was using just now? That he controls all the elements around us to shape us to be. Now, I happen to agree with that, but they're not very popular words. Is that what you were struggling with? That control? Yeah. Never seems it. Never seems it. You know, we go through life and we're making all these free decisions of life. And it's not a conflict with us. But there are situations controlling us out there. I'll just scan the audience for a moment here. Why in this whole group am I the only one with a tie on? That was my free choice, wasn't it? Or was it? What was that? You didn't get a medal on the dress code. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is a dress code amongst us. You know what the dress code is? It's changing all the time. Part of the dress code that I'm aware of is, uh, you know, preachers usually a little more dressed up than the congregation, right? That would be very formal. I remember one time when I first came to a Mass, I was asked to go back in New Jersey and speak at a men's conference. And uh, I had an I had a pair of slacks like this on, trousers I think they're called, and and then uh, back when Pendleton would fit me, a Pendleton plaid jacket. It was real. It was a good looking jacket. You remember, Mosey? It, it was kind of neat. So, <laughs> huh? 
So I, I, I fly back to, to New Jersey, and I'm at the men's conference. And I walked in, and there I looked like a car salesman. Nothing wrong with being a car salesman. You understand? Any car salesman here, I don't want to offend anybody. But, you know, the... They all had three-piece black suits on, every one of them. I thought I was at a funeral. <laughs> and there they were. You know what I'm saying. You're a New Jersey person. I mean, those old CMML men, I tell you what, there they all were. And I felt like a jerk. <laughs> I learned early on, and uh, you got to get a word of, uh, uh, so I make choices like that. And uh, pick that all out before it comes. There it is. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't think it's a violation of who I am. It's based on my experience in life. Uh, but there's a control out there. It's got nothing to do with me. But it ends up impacting me. Life is like that all the time. And, and we don't struggle with it. Say it again. That was a, that was a great statement. That surrounding... Uh, this great genius engineer who could have really done a good job if someone could just control all the pressures that came upon him to do what his potential called for, right? Yeah. All those kind of things. And the guy goes down, he sits at his big board where he does all his genius and wilts and doesn't do anything, although he could. Because management can't control all the details out there. God does. That's part of this superintending. You see where, where I wouldn't have written it that way myself because of other controlling factors. God is the one who's controlling the other factors. Now that's such a huge part of our life. If we ever come to understand and accept this passive, providential, directive control of God in all that's happening around us at any given time. We'd have a simpler life. Wouldn't be such war that goes on. Internally, I mean. Why is this happening this way? But we don't. We go through life... uh, Writing like it's all mine. This is my genius piece of work. You know. Look at the style that flows. Look at the vocabulary. Look at the insights and all the rest of it. It wouldn't have been for God working in our lives from the beginning. And this is true of unsaved man as well as saved man. That God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And and this lapse over into our next subject. But how much? Jesus will say to his disciples, Look guys, a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from your heavenly Father. That's about as minute a detail of life as there is. I don't even blink about a dead sparrow. Do you? But he doesn't fall off the wire, telephone wire out there or the bush where they're... Fourteen of them I counted one time when this one branch of a forsythia bush out our backyard. It was so neat. They're all the sparrows, and God's got them all intact. He knows who's who, and one's not going to drop to the ground apart from his purposes. That really is a lot of... And those sparrows don't know beans about that. They can't even sing, Jesus loves me. Yeah, it's the truth. 
And you gotta, when you come to Scripture, you gotta read in Scripture the minute involvement that God has in everybody's life, saved and unsaved alike. Even the kings, the reigns of the kings are in the Lord's hands, and He tugs this way and they go that way. And uh, doesn't seem like that's happening, but it's happening according to His good purposes. Scripture addresses that everywhere. So superintending becomes a a more easily understood thing. Now, the struggle I have beyond that is, uh, here's Moses. What part did Moses write? The, the Pentateuch, that's Moses. And the Lord agrees with that, beginning in Moses and all the prophets. This is not just some deal that spun out of fundamentalism that Moses wrote those books. That's what Jesus agrees with. If, you know, that's who he is. So Moses did the first five. How? He wasn't even there. Then he tells us what happened on the seven days of creation. Had a long talk with God. <laughs> Don't you think so? Yeah, you know. So there, there has to be some, and that's really the truth, there has to be some great revelation of God in things that no man could ever know. And the Bible talks about that as well. And God is there, as Schaefer was saying, He is not silent. God loves to speak. So, yeah, Moses had a long talk with God. Yet, in what he writes down, he does not violate his personality. All that still comes to play. Now, be aware of the fact that liberals have come up with a JDEP theory about the uh, Pentateuch. There was a Yahwistic writer and a Deuteronomist and a Elohim writer and a priestly writer, and they all get mixed together some way. That's what they think. But Jesus said in Moses and the prophets, I trust Jesus more than the liberal theologians from Germany. Don't you? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he still uses personalities and still uses uh, themes of thought that are the natural thought style, literary style of the writers. But you have to have to have a long talk with God. So that's historical, where God, God reveals himself and the author writes it down according to God's revelation. There's another big part of prophecy that we've referred to. Big part of prophecy. Big part of the Old Testament that I've referred to already called prophecy. All right? There's a sentence that was supposed to come out. That's my style, too, to get it backwards. Okay? Uh, how did this prophecy thing work? By the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's what it says. And the prophecy, they did not write of their own understanding, but the Holy Spirit bore them along and they wrote prophetic things and they didn't even understand them all. Dave McLeod showed me uh, a great uh, illustration uh, he was using in his class. Uh, he was in the copy room just before me. He said, look at this. This is great. It was Harry Truman being uh, uh, involved in the founding of the nation of Israel. And once it got started, Truman was a great president. You know, it turns out that way. He did a lot of God stuff. Well, they all do. They just don't know it. Uh, but uh, he was at a, a banquet being given by the Jews to honor him. 
And uh, they were honoring him for having the courage to be the first nation to recognize this newly founded nation. And when we recognize him, it meant everybody recognize him or we'll blow you up. <laughs> Back in those days, you know. Well, they were just giving him great thoughts of praise about what he had done. And when he stood up, he said, don't praise me. I want you to explain this when I give you the punchline. I'm simply Cyrus. What did that mean? I'm Cyrus. Yeah. Cyrus was identified about 400 years before he ever came on the scene. That number may be a bit off, but it's a long time. And Cyrus, named the king of uh, Persia, comes on the scene in fulfillment of prophetic statement. By name he's named. And Truman, good Baptist that he was, or Southern Methodist, I'm not sure which, knew that story. And he said, look, I was just God's man on the scene. I was Cyrus to you. Praise God. Is that good? That's a profound thing. That's prophecy. That's the kind of prophecy there is in the Bible. And again, you have to have the, the revelation of God to be able to have the prophetic statement. We'll talk more about what prophecy does in relationship to the Word of God. Now, it says, uh, without error in this revelation, when you put all this together, that God is bearing them along, it is the same God who formed the personality, who controlled all their circumstances while they are writing. That becomes easier, easier to understand. Without error, the next statement says... Uh, in the words of the original manuscripts, does that bother any of you? If any of you has one certifiable verse of original manuscript, you could be the wealthiest person on earth. There is no limit as to what you could sell that for. There is not. You get excited about the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written years, were found years after the writing, and good copies. Uh, what I'm saying is nobody has an original manuscript. Does that bother anybody? We stake our life on a book of which we have no original manuscript to demonstrate it's a good translation. Well, that's really the truth of it. And I guess the question I want us to know is, how did he protect it? How did it get gathered together like this? How, like this in broad terms, how was the Old Testament ever collected? How did it get to be in something that could be preservable? Do we know? <coughs> we get some hints. Well, it was even better than that. Some of it was that. The... Uh, Oral tradition that followed. Interestingly, I just mentioned this uh, past week in class. When did we find out the names of the high priests of Egypt? In Timothy. What in the world did Janice and Jim Brees do showing up in Timothy? By name. Oh. Well, that would be an illustration of being passed passed along uh, by, by word of mouth. Uh, the scribes' tradition. The, the, uh, 
the story about uh, the law being uh, accompanied by angels. You don't find that in the Old Testament. You find it in Galatians. You find it in Hebrews. You find it in Acts. It gets pulled over into inspired text way, way, way after it happened. So that is, is part of it. Yeah, the scrolls, you find them in the temple. They're delivered to the temple for safekeeping. Do you know a king who found it? Yeah, finds it. Oh, look at these feasts we've been supposed to have, and we haven't had any of them. We're in trouble, and he sweeps everything out and gets everything cranking up again because they were described. Now, you see that happening in real life. All you got to do is watch Fiddler on the Roof once, and what do they do when they leave? I know most. What do they? You see the rabbi carrying the scroll. During the time of Ezra, there was a, a synagogue of uh, Ezra and others that seemed to be the ones who gathered all scripture together up to that point. And it was. Uh, was safeguarded, and then during the the uh, intertestamental period, uh, there becomes a standardization of the text into what is called the Masoretic text. And what was so exciting is the Dead Sea Scrolls matched it virtually perfectly. That predated all that. So. Uh, there was a collection process as these holy men of God spoke as they were born along. And they recognized that they were speaking of God. And it was deposited with the, with the priest. And it was preserved and standardized. And we get an Old Testament text that all people who learn that unlearnable Hebrew language understand. That's what they study from. What about New Testament books? How, how do we get that all together? When Paul says uh, to the Colossians, I'm writing this to you, and you'll be sure this is read at the other, other churches. What's happening with these epistles? There's a general acceptance among the entire church. Yeah. How, how did they send it from one to another? That one copy? They made copies. They, they put it on their scanner <laughs> and printed 20 of them off. And, no, they, they copied them. And by and by, as they're circulated around, uh, they're collected. And, and clusters, right. It's kind of exciting. He's superintending it. Now, if you take your Hebrew Old Testament and your Greek New Testament, you will notice on every page, someplace along the page, there is a line dark line that separates it off from the text. And above the line is a text, and below the line are all the variant readings on that text. And on some pages there are all sorts of things, misspelling. In, in, in Second Peter it says, the Lord is long-suffering toward us. And you look at that, there's a little note there, and you look at the bottom in your Greek text, and it's got you. There's only one letter difference between us and you in the Greek word. And they both show up in text. Now, it doesn't have any difference 
in the meaning of what's going on. If Peter is saying he, the Lord is long-suffering to us, what does that mean? Yeah, also long-suffering to you. If he's saying to you, he, he's not saying he isn't to me. It's just the way he writes. So you take either of them. doesn't matter. doesn't change anything. But there are hundreds of variations like that. You need to know that. They make no difference. You know the story of the adulterous woman? It's in some text. It's not in some text. It's not in the text that relate to the NIV and uh, New ASV, it is in the text that relates to our translations of the New King James, King James. Everybody includes it because it's such a neat story. <laughs> but they're inconsistent to their basic presuppositions of, of uh, the maintenance of the text. So, you have all these multiplied copies. First of all, distinguished in the Old Testament, collected by the great synagogue, deposited in the temple, preserved by standard, standardized text. And when they when they copied it, it was such they knew the middle letter of a segment, and they counted it that way to see if they made a mistake or not. When they were so careful, when they would come to the name of God, the Jewish scribes would take a bath every time they wrote it. <laughs> Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Three baths for one verse looked like a bunch of prunes. <laughs> yeah, time they were done. And hence, a very careful copy. The New Testament, uh, some lines are repeated. Sometimes words are left out. Uh, not of any great consequence. So, we get the original manuscripts, uh, but nobody has them. We have numerous copies. But guess what? This isn't written in that language. How do you handle that one? <laughs> or Darby's new translation. You're absolutely safe then. <laughs> Fact of the matter is, in all my seminary days when I was doing Greek, we had an assignment in the Greek department to translate the whole New Testament, which we did. And I'd always check it out with Darby because he has a very literal, awkward, but precisely based on the Greek text. So it's a, one of the best translations to study if you want the, the structure of the Greek language as it's going through. It makes very poor English, but it's good Greek. Uh, it's been translated into our language. Think translators have done a good job for us? Exceptional job. These are not a bunch of dummies. They've done a great job. And you put it all together and there's hardly a difference. They're very accurate translations. Some more so than others. But any of them, you can come to understand virtually. I, I remember having come to the end of my studies in seminary in Dallas with Dr. Johnson teaching us advanced Greek grammar. He says, just think in a week you're all going to be masters of theology. It means you've read the Bible once. Isn't that wonderful? You know? <laughs> and he said this, any Christian armed with a few good translations of the Bible indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the great teacher, can understand this book as well as you can. Not a great statement. And it really is the truth. And I said, well, why did I do all this? <laughs> but it is the truth, folks. Pardon? Fire 
Yeah. You go for it. And uh, that, that was an encouraging, encouraging statement, really, in all of its reality. Great translations. Uh, one more question we need to ask about this. How in the wide world did it ever get to us? That's a true statement. On two occasions, all of Western Europe's history was reduced to one library. Just one. When the Huns came down, they destroyed it all. And Aachen, the library remained. When the Vikings came and destroyed it all, I don't mean to offend any of you from Scandinavian countries, but when they came and destroyed it all, only St. Patrick's Library in Ireland was preserved. Our whole history, not just the Bible, but the history of Western civilization, would have disappeared. We wouldn't know anything about anything. And it was sovereignly protected. In a secular work, a series of uh, programs on British television called Western Civilization. The ungodly guy who was developing it all called this section Christianity hanging on by the skin of its teeth. And God in history. You remember your earlier statement is so critical to life. It's controlling what's going on around us. Protected those manuscripts made by, understand this, copied by the Catholic monk system that preserved the text for us on a human level. Did you hear about the priest, the monk in the scriptorium who was copying and started to cry and wail out? Oh, no! Every came, all the monks came running over and they said, What is the problem? He said, The word was celebrate! <laughs> That'll take a while. (laughs) I tell you what. But the fact is, there's a superstructure. Hundreds of years, the text, no more writing from God. God's finally spoken in His Son. The revelation is done. It's going to get copied down. But preserved by the superstructure of the Catholic Church. Do you understand that? Wouldn't have been otherwise. And you wonder, what kind of control is God in? Good control. He's, he's working it out. So, it doesn't matter if we don't have the autograph. There's so many copies. How did it get to us? Through God's continuing super, superintendence. It keeps happening. He didn't spend all the time revealing himself to have it burned up from some Germans or Vikings. Okay? He preserves the text for his people to read down through history. And, and we have it. And we can build our life on the only revelation of the one true God. Only written revelation. There are all other sorts of revelation called natural revelation. But special revelation there. Now we can contrast inspiration. We can describe it. We have been def- defining and defending. We can describe it a little bit by looking at false views of inspiration. 
Uh, some will say it is natural inspiration, like a Mozart would have in things of music. I was, uh, I just recently uh, treated myself. I didn't get it for Christmas, so I went and got it myself. <laughs> the, uh, the Nine Symphonies of Beethoven in one set of CDs. Uh, a reprogramming of uh, uh, von, Kre- uh, von Kragen, uh back in the 60s, but beautifully done. So I'm listening to the symphonies and got a lot of information. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was totally deaf when he wrote it, you know. And I didn't know this until last week. When the, at the Ninth Symphony, he conducted his, the first presentation of the Ninth Symphony. Totally deaf. Had no idea what he was hearing. And he, he figured he'd beat the time. He could do that at least. And he knew where he was. Trouble is, the orchestra finished three minutes before he thought they should. <laughs> and... Uh, they were being led secretly by the first violinist, you know. But he's still up there going like this. And the audience is clapping like crazy. And in that symphony, uh, that's the Carl Symphony, uh, one of the ladies who was singing came up, took Beethoven by the ha- shoulders and turned him around so he could see the audience. And then he realized it was all over, you know. Well, that is pure genius, isn't it? That you can write something you could never hear, never would hear, never did hear. Went on to say uh, at his deathbed, there are three theories as to what he said. And two of them not so good. The third one I like, and I'm not sure which is right. Nobody knows. But it is, I shall hear in heaven. And maybe in heaven I'll hear it for the first time. Who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe in the bad place I'll hear it for the first time. You really can't tell. But at any rate, at any rate, there is natural inspiration like a Mozart. Like a Beethoven, like a prophet. And he wrote outside of himself, as it were. Great gift of God. That's not what it is. Spirit-filled. Now, you know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, maybe that is the technical term we should use for inspiration. Like the artisans of the Old Testament were filled by the Spirit to do all the work on the tabernacle, and when they were done, they weren't filled. Uh, My definition of the filling of the Spirit is uh, being equipped to do a special task. Maybe that is what it is. I get a hint of that. I just sat down and thought about this. This is called theology on the run. Uh, I thought, you know, Caiaphas, being high priest, prophesied. That it was expedient for the nation that one man should die and not the whole nation perish. Well, that's kind of spirit-filled. And if we understand spirit-filled, I'm just toying with this now because I have it on the list of no's at this point in time, as I was taught. But if we think spirit-filled is being equipped sovereignly of God to be a, a writer of Holy Scripture, and when that's concluded, the spirit's filling is concluded, that might be a good explanation of it with a biblical Definition. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit bore them along through His uh, controlling them. I have to think about that one some more, so put a question mark next to that. What, what some people will say is when you give a good message, you were filled by the Spirit. That might be too, but probably isn't. Dictation. Is part of the Bible dictated? Oh, yeah. Can you think of some of it? 
Yeah, Ten Commandments sure is. Write this down. And that's why I like to think about the uh, adulterous woman story. That the Lord stooped over and started writing the dirt with his finger. I think he wrote the Ten Commandments just like he did twice before. And uh, they all went away, beginning from the oldest to the youngest, those who experienced breaking more of the commandments than the youngest. You know, maybe that's what he wrote. Who knows? But that's dictated. God dictated it. In the epistle, in the book of Revelation, the seven letters dictated. He says to John, write this down. And it's interesting when he says, write this down, it follows a very organized pattern for each of the seven letters. Kind of reflects God's character there. Most of the Bible is not that. Because you have the human style seen in so much of the rest. Partial inspiration would be uh, like uh, the things they wouldn't know themselves, like history. The creation account and like prophecy. Those things that they couldn't know themselves was inspired. The rest was just human. Now, we have already said God had to do them a lot of teaching to do that stuff, and others was just a natural writing of the narrative which they understood, as in the Gospels and Luke's study and Acts and all the rest of it. Uh, but it's not uh, just part of it's inspired. Some of it's inspired because people would, uh, the part that is inspired that they wouldn't have known would be the prophecy and the historical and scientific statements that are made that they don't know about. But the other part is inspired as well, because all Scripture is inspired of God. God just helps in a special way in certain areas that they could not possibly know themselves. Concepts are inspired. The big idea is there. Now, write it in your own words. Sort of the basis for the NIV translation. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. But I did, didn't I? Uh, fallible inspiration, that, that is a, a liberal account of saying there are mistakes, historical mistakes, geographical mistakes, uh, uh, chronological mistakes in the Bible. There are contradictions, it's fallible. I mean, we've got one blind man at Jericho and you've got two blind men at Jericho. Somebody made a mistake. Oh Lord, we were referring to one of these last night where uh, uh, the servants come or the... the the centurion comes, and both of those things are stated. And you try to deal with those, and uh, there's generally a good illustration, a good way of explaining them. Sometimes there's not. Are you troubled in a book written by God that there be some things in it we can't understand? And it doesn't seem to make sense the way it's recorded? I tell you, I, I was on one in, in Hebrews chapter 2, where the author he was trying to prove the, prove the humanity of Christ... And he quotes from Isaiah, where Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children that you've given to me. And the author of Hebrews says, You see that? That proves the humanity of Jesus. I'd like to say, How? <laughs> well, I think we figured out how, because he is the great prophet, and what's said of the prophets can be said of Jesus under the care of inspiration. I asked my teacher, Can I quote scripture that way? He said, If you're inspired, you can. But I'm not inspired. So I only quote it the way they do. I would never say of Jesus, here's a verse in the Old Testament, out of Egypt I have called my son. When you read that in the Old Testament, what's it talking about? It's calling the nation of Israel. You read it, 
the angel says, get out of here and go down to Egypt because you're going to get killed if you stay here. And then they call him back and they said, out of Egypt I have called my son. I'd have never guessed that. Yeah, that's just the way it is. Uh, fallible. That some things are true and some things aren't. But you see things like that as the way Scripture has more than one meaning. So I'll say, you know, God, you really did a good piece of work in this book. It says way more than I think it says. And it says it, I hesitate saying this, it says it at different levels and in different ways. I believe in a plain reading of Scripture. But there's stuff behind it. In the book, the section in the book of Acts, where uh, Peter's going to take the word to Cornelius, out of all the events that the that Luke could pick to record, he picks uh, three stories. He picks about the story about Aeneas and Dorcas, and he he ends that little introduction by saying, uh, "I'm staying at the house of Simon the Tanner." And the next thing you know, they're knocking at the door, and he's off to get Cornelius saved and open up the door to the Gentiles. Why did he mention those three things? And you look at this and say, hey, Aeneas is paralyzed. Dorcas is dead. Simon is always unclean because he's a tanner. Now let's go to the Gentiles who are dead in sin, without God and without hope in the world, who are paralyzed and unclean. Peter? Kill and eat. No, Lord, I'm clean. Kill and eat. Kill and eat. And Peter goes down and says, I didn't really want to do this, but I obeyed, and here I am for the first time in a non-kosher house, and here's the gospel. And he opens the door to the Gentiles like he did when the first time he used the keys to the Jews. Wow. There's so many levels. The clear story is there. The miracle of God confirming his truth, but... Why these three? It's a perfect match to go out to the Gentile world. And the more you read, the more you say, oh, there's so many levels of God. I'd expect some of it to be hard. Some of it to be not exactly the way I'd do it. Not mistakes. Purpose. This is kind of a, a, a true myth approach. That there's a, a, a truth to it all, but... It's told in mythological terms. Now, you've got to admit, some of this uh, becomes attractive to the Western civilized, educated mind. God makes man out of the dust of the earth? You've got to be kidding me. And there's only a man, and then he, he says, oh, these animals are nice, but they don't work. So he makes a woman out of a rib? Yeah? And then the animals are talking to them. There's a serpent that says, as God said, you shall not eat. Do you believe all that? And some of us, not me, some intellectuals will say, you can't believe that. But you can believe the mythological story that says... God is interested in us and us fallen condition, fallen people. No, they wouldn't even say fallen. In us people who are evolving out of the dirt of primordial slime and uh, have come to this point in time, God is interested in us, and that's the point of this. There was no literal garden and no literal creation and none of this. That's all a myth, but it's a true myth because it shows us that God's interested in us. 
And he wants us to evolve into the glories of mankind. You see, so they can read. People with uh, no belief and inspiration or in the teaching of Scripture can read that and say, there's an element of truth in all that can benefit all of us. That's not what inspiration is either. In fact, that's a denial of inspiration. The consequence of which is we believe in this book as God's perfect revelation. And uh, this is an important order. I've changed this slide a number of times in my presentations, the last one. The reason this book is truth is because, God, it's not a true book. Hear my content of this context of the statement. Truth does not arise out of this book. This book arises out of truth. And God is truth. I am the way, the truth. Jesus does not say, I tell the truth. He says, I am the truth. He is the source of it. The reason this book is truth is because it is God's revelation. And God is the source of all truth. So God is truth. Therefore, what he has told us in this miraculous way, God and man's book, preserved by God, using all these uh, instruments to bring to us this book, preserving the text in the face of history, we have a book that contains the truth because it comes from the source of truth, God. And the application of that is then, it is tells us, just what the Westminster Confession tells us, that the Bible teaches us all we know for faith, what to believe to be a believer, to be uh, on the way to heaven, and what we need to do to live in obedience to it. It is truth. Jesus will pray, sanctify them through thy word. What's the next statement? Thy word is truth. It has to be. And hence we have the only and supreme worldview that can be considered truth. How do you like that statement? In an era of diversity, we can say, no, you're wrong. That won't work for your life. Will not work. Because it's contradictory to truth. We are in a strange era where everything is relative. If you believe a horse is, a, is an elevator, I'm happy for you if that brings meaning to your life. Well, the horse is never going to take you to the 21st story of the place, you know. It, it doesn't work in applied life. It doesn't work on your grocery shopping list. If you don't have absolutes. Schaefer makes a great statement. There was a crazy liberal thinker who was against all absolutes, who had as his hobby collecting mushrooms for eating. And Schaefer said, if your view of life won't work for your hobby, it's certainly not going to work for eternity. If you can't apply everything is relative to mushrooms, some of which are not a bit relative. They will kill you. You can't have a non-absolutist life to be able to make it through. It's that simple. And we're in the mixed mix right now of it's beyond 
relativism. It is saying, I rejoice in your diversity, you rejoice in mine. There are no debates anymore. There are no arguments. Because it doesn't matter. And we will say with Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can't get narrower than that. We have the truth. Let's pray together. Father, for your word, for the trustworthy guide for our life, for time, and for eternity, we thank you. And uh, we thank you that in a world from the beginning of man to now, we represent a very small minority that have been touched by your grace. And who am I? Who is my people that we should be so blessed? So we thank you that of a very few percentage of all of mankind, you so fit to break through that darkness and bring the truth to us that we might have eternal life and live a life now that is pleasing to you, the great God, and forever be with you and all those of like faith. We praise your grace in your Son's name. Amen. Yes, sir. There are those now who are attacking the scripture who are coming from supposed Christian. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could, maybe, maybe tonight would be the time to tell the group, but if you could tell us who they are, why they're saying what they're saying, and what our response could be. We'll give that a little try, yeah. Yeah. Remind me tonight, wave my hands if I get started elsewhere. <laughs>